Good morning. My name is Peter, and I really want to help our church this year be more verbally and audibly engaged. I know you feel things. I know you think things. But it's all happening invisibly inside of you. If we can just express it a little, I think we would just have a better experience. And so I'm going to keep pushing this every week in different ways. So this week, would you acknowledge Katie and the band, please? I love it when Katie talks. I've asked her several times to just talk more. She's so thoughtful and prepared, and I feel so safe. You know, sometimes when people talk, you don't feel safe. But with Katie, I do. And so thank you for all that hard work and thought and energy you put into it. We really benefit from it, and we thank you for it. If you are hungry, she can help. If you need a friend, she can help. If you want a story, she is here. Lisa Odegaard, come and tell us a story. Um, my name is Lisa, and I am married to Brian, and I have two children, um, Stellan, who is eight, and Gunnar, who is four, and there's Gunnar. So the story that I'm going to tell is about Gunnar, and that's totally who he is. So um, in September of 2015, I decided to make the very difficult um, decision to quit my job and stay home and take care of and enjoy my boys. And little did I know that me quitting my job was the only way that I was going to be able to deal with the events that happened in late October. So to kick things off, for starters, uh, we found out that the boy's former nanny, Sarah, was lost overnight in over 8,000 acres of woods. And then um, also, while we were trying to wrap our mind around that, my sister-in-law, Emily Jameson, um, was having our newest nephew, and we found out he was covered in port wine stains, and I don't know if you know what that is, but it has, it can cause blindness, it can cause uncontrollable seizures, there are lots of things that it could potentially happen when you're covered in port wine stains, not always, but, and then two days later, um, sweet little Gunner's hands were badly burned. So we're like, what is going on with our family? <laughs> so um, usually I would walk the floor plan of a friend's house. My husband and I went to go visit his boss for dinner. And um, when I look a floor, over a floor plan, I usually think, what is the worst case scenario that could happen? And for some reason, I didn't do that. And I've regretted it ever since. So we were having dinner and... Um, I didn't notice this furnace that was very far in the back. It was converted wood stove that didn't have glass on it. Um, it was the summer, so I mean, it was just out of like an Indian summer, so I didn't notice that it was even on. And um, Brian was getting up to get water, and he saw the furnace too late, and Gunnar had just put both hands straight on it. And um, super hard when I think about that. Um, and this is also my worst nightmare to cry in public. Um, so, um, anyway, so obviously, uh, if you could show the picture of Gunnar's hands. So that's the first one, and then there's another one. So that's his other hand. So when he put his hands on there, he screamed so loudly that it will never be anything that I forget. 
Um, we put his hands in her cold water, gave him a large dose of ibuprofen, and left the for the hospital with a huge bag of ice on his hands. Um, we're in a very rural area, and we knew that it would take us 45 minutes to get to Children's Hospital. I didn't want to go anywhere else. So the downside of it taking 45 minutes is that I could potentially scream the entire time. And so I let our older son know that this could happen. And Stellan's so sweet. He leaned over and gave his brother a kiss and talked to him. And I told him if he felt frustrated, he needed to look out of the window. And uh, Stellan never complained. He just looked straight out the window after he gave his brother kisses. So as we were coming up to the I-9405 interchange, Gunnar had stopped wailing, and he was exhausted, so we decided to head home instead because they weren't life-threatening injuries. And before you judge me, um, I have been as badly burned myself on both hands. And um, so I felt like I could take care of it in the interim before we went to uh, the hospital. So I didn't come upon that decision hastily, but I was a little overconfident. Um, so Gunnar fell asleep. He slept through the whole night. Um, and then the next day, we headed to the hospital. Um, I told Brian that I'd keep him posted because there was no reason to drag Stella into the hospital and wait for God knows how long. Um, and I'm very thankful that I did that. Um, so when I checked him into Children's, what I didn't consider is because his hands are still growing and the burns crossed over multiple areas of his hands, um, he would need surgery to remove the dead skin. So at, when I was at Children's Hospital, um, once I realized that, um, I started crying and I was very careful to turn away from Gunner because I didn't want to scare him. And the nurse and the doctors told me that I was going to have to take him to Harborview. Uh, so they called ahead to make sure that he would get seen immediately. Now, for those of you that don't live in the Seattle area, if you hear that someone's been taken to Harborview, you know that their situation can be really dire. Um, so I was a little frantic, so I took him there, and as if we didn't need to feel more uncomfortable, um, when you go into the ER, because it's a trauma unit and there are gunshot victims there, uh, you have to go through uh, metal detectors and get frisked. So I, even Gunner was frisked, which was just very disturbing for me. Um, so uh, once we were in the ER, surgeons um, and doctors um, were looking over Gunner and kept asking questions. The head pediatric surgeon had no bedside banner and grilled me why I didn't come to the hospital the night prior, and I explained my reasoning, which at that point sounded totally crazy and unreasonable. And then I squeaked out, have I caused irreparable damage by not coming in sooner? And he looked at me intently and said, no, he will heal with no emotion. By this time, it's about 8.30, and the doctors told me that Gunnar was going to be admitted overnight, and the surgery was to take place at 10 p.m. As they needed to wait for a room to be ready, and the pain medication to kick in. I want to point out that this entire time, Gunner was his usual upbeat, playful, and sassy self. And I am thankful for this because I couldn't help but feel it, be feeling the worst parental guilt and not protecting him better. His surgery went well, but the medication that they gave him made excitable instead of sleepy. So that's him after surgery. 
And they were so gentle with him. They were so wonderful. If you ever have any trauma, I would suggest just go to Straight Harbor View. <laughs> they were amazing. Um, I prayed for restful sleep for Gunnar and I, um, but due to him being excitable, um, we just had three hours of sleep. So this is after um, post-surgery, and he is super playful. The head pediatric surgeon that emotionally crushed me earlier um, took the time to explain to me in no uncertain terms that if I didn't complete Gunnar's exercises correctly, his hands would curve be, and he would be crippled for the rest of his life, and it would be all of my fault. He actually said that. So for the next three months, every 45 minutes for 10 seconds apiece, I had to bend back all of Gunnar's fingers as far as they could go. And I had to bend back his hands and then bend back each finger to make sure that the tendons would stretch instead of constrict. Now, if you try to bend back your fingers as far as they could go, it does not feel good. Now, managing your skin being so tender and doing the same motion, I had to distract him with a song or like a little jig so that he wouldn't complain. In addition, I also had to do wound care, which involved me coordinating with Brian to be home 45 minutes uh, before, so I had to give Gunner his pain medication, a doctor-prescribed dose of oxycodone, so that the med um, medicine would dull his pain. I'd put him in the bath after I, um, he was so tiny that I just put him in our kitchen sink, so I had to sanitize the entire thing and um, to make sure that he didn't get an infection and make everything much worse. Um, to this day, Gunner does not like hot water at all on his body or his hands. He, I don't think he remembers the incident, but his body remembers the trauma. So in closing, I am really thankful that this incident has not affected Gunnar's sweet disposition. And he always has a smile on, a, on his face and a happy heart. So, <laughs> um, to tie up loose ends from the earlier in my story and end on a positive note, our nephew has no significant issues with his port wine stains. The boy's former nanny was found, and Gunnar's hands have healed completely. You could never even tell that the burns were there. So thank you for listening to my story. <laughs> um, this morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the first one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. 
And thank you, Lisa, for that story. It's really a gut-wrenching thing to be a parent, isn't it? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, gosh. <clears throat> I want to talk about what it means to be a real church, how to be human beings who walk together, who talk together, who go through things together. And so as we do that, right now, I want to give you a few moments to think about the stories of your life this year. I'm going to actually give you some time to do that. Some health things, some relationship things, some inner turmoil, lots of work stuff. What's your year been like for you? Highlights, lowlights? I want to refer back to last week's sermon and remind all of us that we believe that God, the God that we know and love and respond to, he is committed to the whole of our story. He never ever just takes a slice of your moment and says, that's just who you are. That's all of you. There's nothing before you and there's nothing after you. What you feel, what others perceive about you, that's it. He never ever does that. He's committed to the whole journey from start to finish. You got to love that verse where Jesus says to the disciples who continue to fail him. He says, I love you. And the Bible, sa the Bible says, and he loved them to the end. And the alternative to that we said last week is to blame. To just slap labels on people. To judge, to condemn. To think of them in one way. To let one thing, a partial thing, define them. And then we close the book on them. Put them away on the shelf, categorized, analyzed. And if we think about it that way, a commitment to the whole story is so much more human. It's so much deeper. It's truer. And that's how God is with us. And the Bible says that when we know God, when people know God this way, are on the receiving end of this kind of God, we in turn commit to the whole story in other people's lives as well. And a gathered space of doing that together, of saying, I see you. I'm not going to stop seeing you. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking for the turns and, and, the, and the ways that the, the flow of your life is going to change. I'm going to hold out hope for you. That's what it means to be a church. That's why we are together today. Not so that we can compare ourselves to each other or to point fingers and feel better about ourselves. But so that we can do this story thing together. That's the value of it. That's the whole reason. So we together, we forsake the pleasure and convenience of judging and labeling, and we embrace a whole new way of being together. And so what I want to do today is I want to look into three stories in the Bible, Jesus' encounters with different people, and I want to sort of just highlight and underscore and make sure this point gets made and that you believe that this is really what God wants to do. 
Not just an idea Peter has or a way of looking at it or something. But this is really God's whole mission. To do that for the whole of humanity. I know there are some counter-narratives, counter-ideals that have crept into the church. And I want to show you that those things are not true. Those are the lies that we are resisting as a church. Those things, that's just sort of fallen human nature. It's not new. It's not better than anything that's been. But the gospel is new. It's different. And so I want to um, make sure we get it. Got it? Got it. All right. Three stories. Okay, so we have this first story that uh, Lisa read for us. And the title I have on my, in my notes is called Adultery. And there's a few phrases. I want us to dig into this story a little bit more than the other two. And uh, we'll see how this is sort of God's way with all of us, and it really addresses the trappings of how human beings tend to do it and how God is so different. The first phrase I want to highlight for you is this phrase, trying to trap him. They wanted to uh, set up a scenario that made Jesus stumble. And this isn't, this isn't a unique situation. People did this to him all the time. And this particular trap is like the other traps. And it's usually because they have some construct in their heads about how God is. And then Jesus comes, this revolutionary, revolutionary young man comes saying that he is from God. And he claims to speak on behalf of God. He claims to know what God is really about. And so they want to trap him because there's such a contradiction. Right? And in this case, they want to prove that the love that Jesus has been preaching contradicts the law of God. And so Jesus says, this is the love of God. And the Pharisees say, no, this is the law of God. Which will he choose? That's the trap. Right? And so they are going to prove that he is false. And this is uh, something I want to start with because I think this is kind of the battle in our minds. When we are invited to love people, the first thing maybe that pops up into our minds, good intentioned minds, is, but what about what's right and wrong? What about the law? What about what's good long term? How do I really help this person? If I just meet this person's felt needs right now, then am I harming them in the future? There's some law, some wisdom, some higher truth I'm violating. I'll give you a stupid example. People change their speech patterns around me all the time as soon as they find out I'm a pastor. And then sometimes it slips out. And then they do this funny thing where they put, I think it's about, Four fingers, like kind of pressed together, and they put it over their pursed lips. Oops, sorry. <laughs> now you, you're laughing because you understand this, right? And I used to feel like, well, if if I don't address it um, by 
agreeing that we shouldn't speak that way, then I, I just felt like I was doing God a disservice, that I wasn't sort of representing God right. And then I sort of moved uh, past that where I would just ignore it. And then I moved past that and I would just join them. Because for the, for the gospel's sake, I wanted, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted them to feel safe with me. And it's sort of signaling. You know, we do social signaling all the time, right? We signal to the other person, I'm with you. It's kind of like people like us speak like that, and that's okay. I wanted to get to a deeper place in the conversation. I wanted to actually connect. And so we just build little verbal bridges by speaking in a similar manner, right? Sorry, but I'm starting to judge you. <laughs> Traps, they exist. And you have your own traps. You know, you, you just feel the temptation to have to be more legal, have to lean into the truth side of truth and love more. And that's what they're trying to do to Jesus here. Second phrase that I want us to look at is this phrase, caught in the act. Now, this caught in the act. They come to Jesus and say, this woman was, quote unquote, caught in the act. This is the bait. It's saying, this is irrefutable. This is so clearly wrong. Let me just forget about all the distracting factors. She was caught in the act. This is the only thing you have to pay attention to. It's so clear. It should be black and white. It's binary. Choose A and live or choose be and die. And often when we, are, uh, when we come across scenarios, it's painted that way. It just seems like just A or B. There can't possibly be a story here. Is there more? I mean, she was caught in the act. That's it. It's flat. It's two-dimensional. This person is just wrong, just immoral, just stupid. Just incorrigible, can't learn, can't grow. There's no hope for change. And we love to do this, for example, in politics. I was, uh, you know, for this section of the sermon, I was scouring the week's headlines. Don't do that. It's really depressing. <laughs> it really is. And I began to feel like I was coming like just naked dark. I felt my mood change. But this was all people, all headlines are trying to do. It's trying to say this person is just like this. They were basically caught in the act. You could turn off your brain. You don't have to think. You don't have to inquire. Research over. Just make the call. Judge. Is it a ball? Is it a strike? And it's a trap. That's the bait. They've lured you in now. If you believe the headline, you're caught in the trap. And that's why gossip is so dangerous. Because all you get is the bait. Somebody says, did you hear? Did you know? Taking somebody else's word. You've been triangled in. Right? So... I know, and I think when I say it like that publicly, you know this isn't the whole story. 
oh, but it's so delicious, isn't it? You just want to believe that's the whole story so badly. Next phrase. They're demanding an answer because Jesus keeps not giving them an answer. A or B, what more do you need? She was caught in the act. The law says this. What's the problem, Jesus? Do you feel it? Do you feel your back to the wall? Everybody wants to know, where do you stand? I've come to loathe this idea of position. I don't know my position. Even the earth itself is moving. Do you know our whole universe is moving? Our galaxy is moving. Everything is moving. We're all on a journey. Everything is a story. God's tracking all of it. He is the only fixed point. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Everything else is changing. 30 days, 100% of your skin cells have replaced themselves. You are not even you. <laughs> oh, but you feel this. This is the emotion of the trap. This is the power move, demanding. And then Jesus begins to peel back the mask, and we see the trap for what it, what it is. He says, the one who has never sinned. If you believe that you can be a fixed point, that you are not part of any story, you are just an event. You are perfect right now. You have arrived. You don't need hope because you're done. You don't need mercy. You don't need kindness. If that's you, if you believe that you yourself are perfect, go ahead. Cast the first stone. Believe the headline. Point the finger. Judge the woman. You do it. Here's the gavel. Pound it. Give the sentence. If you really believe you are qualified to do that, do it. And then you realize, oh, I can't do that. I just had set a trap. That's all I've done. In fact, the setting of the trap proves that I don't have the right to make the judgment. My imperfection, my fear of the light, my need to hide the log in my eye, that's why I was pointing out the speck. It was an evasive maneuver. It was a magic trick. It was misdirection at best. And Jesus shows that with one phrase. The one who has never sinned. The one who has never missed the mark. The one who is perfect. You go for it. More power to you. You want to live by the sword? Go ahead. But you will die by the sword. And then we get to freedom from the trap. This phrase here. you got to love this. Only Jesus was left. That's it. 
just the rocks, the sounds of rocks dropping on the soft dirt. How deafening that sound must have been. How powerful. All of humanity, human history, human nature just collapses. There was nothing after all. There was no authority after all. There was nothing to speak of after all. The only one standing is Jesus. And then we get to the end of the story. Now for these guys, but for her it's the beginning. Jesus says, neither do I go and sin no more. This is story triumphing over blame, mercy triumphing over judgment. It's healing, it's redemption, it's love. It's the beginning. Every day, each morning, the Bible tells us, his mercies are new. Each morning, you wake up and all your accusers are gone. And it's just Jesus waiting for you, saying, hey, Peter, come. Let's have a new day together. What about, forget about it. It's all, it's all good. What do you mean? It's, I made it good. It's, it's all good. We're starting over today. Only Jesus was left. I want to give you uh, a theory here. And if you do re any kind of research uh, on, on this part of the story, there are so many theories. I think mine is the best. Just <laughs> humbly submit to you my theory. And by the way, so does Pope John II or whatever. I'm stealing it from him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wrote in the dust with his finger. And he does it twice. He does it twice if you read the story. And I was researching um, how many times God writes in the dirt. Never, except this time. But I was researching how many times God writes with his finger. And I think that's what this is referring to. Guess when is the last time God wrote with his finger? It's called the finger of God. The finger of God. It's the Ten Commandments. And so I think what Jesus is doing, the Bible tells us that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Meaning the law had a purpose. And the purpose of the law was always love. It wasn't like the law and love were ever at opposition to each other. The law was always for the purpose of, of accomplishing love. And then Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and he writes the new law. Summarize all of the laws that ever were. Even traffic laws. The point of traffic laws is love. It's safety. It's order. That's love. Right? And so all the laws that ever was fulfilled in Christ. And he writes it with the finger of God in the dirt. I think this is it. But again, this is just a theory. But I, I'd like to believe that's true. 
And it makes sense to me. So that's the first story, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But let's close here with two more stories. This next story, I'm going to read it for us, says this. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What's the story underneath the story here? We have the story of Jesus encountering this so-called Samaritan woman. Now, you know, Samaritans were hated and despised and judged by the Jews. They categorically were inferior to the Jews. They were categorically deemed rejected of God. They were a condemned people. And here Jesus is violating that law, risking his reputation. Remember, the disciples come back. They find Jesus talking with the women, and they step back. They create distance between themselves and Jesus, and they begin to doubt. The, sort of the righteousness of Christ. Doesn't, this, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? Right? But the, really the, the story underneath the story is hidden in this story. And that's the line, go call your husband. Jesus knows her story. And he's been tracking it all along. He knows about the five times that she was divorced. That means that five times she was rejected, probably abused. And she is covered in shame. So much so that even amongst other Samaritans, she doesn't want to be seen. And so she comes at a time when she knows she'll be alone. But the magic happens when Jesus encounters her. And he says, if I give you water and you drink this water that I give to you, you can have this water springing up from within you. Meaning you can do what I do. You can offer water to thirsty people like I am offering to you. And the way I'm doing it is by knowing you, by tracking with you and your story. And if you read the rest of the story, what happens is she goes back to her village and starts interacting with her villagers and she saves the whole village. She tells them all about Jesus. So she becomes the spring of water that Jesus was talking about to those people. And the vision of our church, the vision of churches in general, it's in this story. If you are willing to see people and know that they have had five husbands and you love them anyway and you put aside the trap and you engage their humanity and you hold out hope for them, and you believe with God that they are loved, and you join God in what he's already doing, then you can become living water to them. This is the promise of Jesus to this woman, and it's the promise of Jesus to you. Last story. And this story really is about God's glory. 
John chapter 9 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice the binary again. This is everywhere because that's just human nature. We're not very imaginative. It's just a blame game, right? Who committed the crime? You know, I noticed that even though I think about this stuff and I try to live this stuff and it's my job to do this stuff, even then, when something doesn't quite go right in my life, I start bargaining with God and I start going, well, I'll stop doing this and I'll do more of that. Immediately, I just turn to the blame game. Because, well, maybe it wasn't my parents. It was me then. I sinned. So I'll, I'll stop sinning or I'll moderate it for a while. But here, this story reveals to us the point of every story. The point of every story is the glory of God so that the works of God might be displayed. Surprise, it's not about you. Is that okay? Just let yourself go, man. It doesn't have to be you. Receive that as freedom. Be free. Just be a child. Have fun. Just play the love game. And let God get all the glory. Let him figure out all the wrongs and rights. In fact, he says, only I get to judge anyways. Paul says, who are you to judge another servant? You both serve the same master. The master decides who's doing a better job if there is such a thing. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. So uh, a chart here as we close. I want to apply this. I was reading this uh, paper this week, uh, and it showed, the research shows that humans really aren't after happiness after all. Really, they're after satisfaction. And the purpose is really about other people. That's where we experience satisfaction. Even people who are seeking power, they don't want power without relation to other people. So ultimately, it's about other people. You know, people who seek status, it's status compared to other people. Everything that we can list out, the paper says, it's really just about people. I mean, that's another way to say it's really just about love. So that's really our purpose in our heart of hearts. We are after love. I came across this research this week as well. This is uh, the latest um, uh, research that's been put out that shows that clergy, Christian clergy, has the lowest approval rating in the history of clergy. The year 2018, people have the lowest opinions of Christians in the history of Christianity. That's, that's huge. We're at 37%. 37%. Um, 
I want to ask the question of you as we close. What would it take for our church to course correct and really be the church, the church that God always intended for us to be? Forget the dogs, forget the ponies. What's the show? And I think it's love. And so here, this year, I want to challenge our church, and you're going to hear this from, you're going to hear from me about this every week in some way, is I want our church to do these things. One, to err on the side of loving. We're not going to get it. We're not going to nail it perfectly. That's how the pendulum swings. It's okay. It's going to swing back. And then it'll swing back. And then finally settle on some really good place. But until then, we're going to keep erring on the side of being loving. Number two, we're going to take risks. We're going to do some scary things. Scary things that make you wonder, does that mean we're not a Christian church? Not because we're not being Christian, but because it just feels so different than how we've been a church. We're going to take some risks. Number three, we're going to keep learning. Number four, we're going to keep growing and changing. And finally, by the year 2020, next year, we're going to feel more proud of our church family than we have ever before. We have to get there. Or else, what's the point? There is no satisfaction in any other way. So I want to ask you to close your eyes. God, as I close uh, my eyes and we close our eyes together as a church, I just, I'm thinking about what it must have felt like uh, when you walked the earth. How you reached out and loved people that were deemed unlovable. You loved the unclean, you loved the criminal. You loved the forsaken. You loved the forgotten. And you chose those so-called sinners over religious people, people who were deemed good and established and legitimate and valid. You rejected them. You left the 99 for the one. And you were persecuted and killed for it. So God, I don't know what this next year holds, but I really want us to get there. And we really need your help to get there. So God, I pray as we close out this year, whatever it takes, put us on that path. In the name of Jesus and to his glory we pray.